Volume three, chapter five of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume three, chapter five. Vous avez bien froid, la belle. Comment vous appelez-vous? Les amours et les yeux doux de nous ceux-ci sont des clous. Je suis l'amour, dit-elle. Qui est la branche de où? Victor Hugo. As John lay impatiently patient upon his bed in the round oak-panelled room at Overley, during the weeks that followed his accident, his thoughts by day and by night varied no more than the note of a chaffinch in the trees outside. Oh, let the solid earth not fall beneath my feet, before I too have found what some have found so sweet. That was the one constant refrain. The solid earth had nearly failed beneath his feet, Nearly, nearly. If the world might but cohere together and not fly off into space, if body and soul might but hold together till he had seen die once more, till he knew for certain from her own lips that she loved him. Unloved by any woman until now, wistfully ignorant of woman's tenderness, even of its first alphabet learnt at a mother's knee, unread in all its later language, in these days of convalescence, a passionate craving was upon him to drink deep of that untasted cup which some have found so sweet. He had Mitty, and Mitty at least was radiantly happy during these weeks with John fast in bed, and in a condition to dispense with other nursing than hers. She sat with him by the hour together, mending his socks and shirts, for she would not suffer anyone to touch his clothes except herself, and discoursing to him about Di a subject which she soon perceived never failed to interest him. "'Miss Dinah,' Mitty would say for the twentieth time, but without wearying her audience, "'now there's a fine upstanding lady for my lamb.' "'Lady Aris Fane is very pretty, too,' John would remark, with the happy knack of self-concealment peculiar to the ostrich and the sterner sex. "'Hoot!' Mitty replied. "'She's nothing beside Miss Dinah.' If you have Lady Fane with her silly ways, and so snappy to her maid, you'll repent every hair of your head. You take Miss Dinah, my dear, as is only waiting to be asked. She wants you, my precious, Mitty never failed to add. I tell you it's as plain as the nose on your face. A simile the force of which could not fail to strike him. It's not that Lord Hemstitch, for all his pretty looks, it's you. And John told himself he was a fool, and then secretly felt under the pillow, for a certain pencilled note, which Di had left with the doctor on her hurried departure to London the morning after the ice carnival. It had been given to him when he was able to read letters. It was a short note. There was very little in it, and a great deal left out. It did not even go over the page. But nevertheless John was so very foolish as to keep it under his pillow, and when he was promoted to his clothes it followed into his pocket. Even the envelope had a certain value in his eyes had not her hand touched it, and written his name upon it. Lindo and Fritz, who had been consumed with ennui during John's illness, were almost as excited as their master, when he hobbled, on Mitty's arm, into the morning-room for luncheon. Lindo was aware of sediments of beef-tea and sticks of toast. Fritz, who had had a plethora of whites of poached eggs, sniffed anxiously at the luncheon-tray with its roast pheasant. There were tricks and Albert biscuits after luncheon, succeeded by heavy snoring on the hearth-rug. 
John was almost as delighted as they were to leave his sick-room. It was the first step towards going to London. When should he ring permission from his doctor to go up on urgent business? Five days? Seven days? Surely in a week at latest he would see die again. He made a little journey round the room to show himself how robust he was becoming, and wound up the old watches lying in the blue du roi Sèvre tray, making the repeat one after the other, because Di had once done so. Would Di make this her sitting-room? It was warm and sunny. Perhaps she would like the outlook across the bowling-green and low, ivy-coloured balustrade away to the moors. It had been his mother's sitting-room. His poor mother! He looked up at the pretty vacant face that hung over the fireplace. He had looked at it so often that it had ceased to make any definite impression on him. He wondered vaguely whether the happy or the unhappy hours had preponderated in this room in which she was wont to sit, the very furniture of which remained the same as in her quickly finished day. And then he wondered whether, if she had lived, Di would have liked her. For it was still early in the afternoon, and he had positively nothing to do. He tried to write a few necessary letters in the absence of Mitty, who was busy washing his handkerchiefs. But he soon gave up the attempt. The exertion made his head ache, as he had been warned it would. So he propelled himself across the room to his low chair by the window. What should he do till tea-time? If only he'd asked Mitty for a bit of wash-leather, he might have polished up the brass slave-collar in the Satsuma dish. He took it up and turned it in his hands. It was a heavy collar enough, with the owner's name engraved thereon. Roger Tempest, 1698. It must have galled him, said John to himself, and he took up the gag next and put it into his mouth, and then had considerable difficulty in getting it out again. What on earth should he do with himself till tea-time? One of the bits of Venetian glass standing in the central niche of the lac cabinet at his elbow had lost its handle. He got up to examine it and, thinking the handle might have been put aside within, pushed back the glass in the centre of the niche, which, as in so many of its species, shut off a small enclosed space between the tiers of drawers. The glass door on its little pillars opened inwards, but not without difficulty. It was clogged with dust. The handle of the Venetian glass was not inside. There was nothing inside but a little old, old, very old, glue bottle, standing on an envelope, and a broken china cup beside it with the broken bits in it. The hand that had put them away so carefully to mend, on a day that never came, was dust. They remained. John took out the cup. It matched one that stood in the pitch-gallery. The pieces seemed to be all there. He began to fit them together with the pleased interest of a child. He'd really found something to do at last. At the bottom of the cup was a key. It was a very small key with a large head, matching the twisted handles of the drawers. This was becoming interesting. John put down the cup and fitted the key into the lock of one of the drawers. Yes, it was the right one. He became quite excited. Half the cabinets in the house were locked, and would not open. Of some he had found the keys by diligent search, but the keys of others had never turned up. Here was evidently one. The key turned with difficulty, but still it did turn, and the drawer opened. The dust had crept over everything, over all the faded silks and bobbins and feminine gear, of which it was half full. John disturbed it, and then sneezed till he thought he should kill himself. 
but he survived to find among the tangle of work a tiny white garment half-made, with the rusted needle still in it. He took it out. What was it? Doll's clothing. And then he realised that it was a little shirt, and that his mother had probably been making it for him, and had not had time to finish it. John held the baby's shirt that he ought to have worn in a very reverent hand, and looked back at the picture. That bit of unfinished work begun for him seemed to bring her nearer to him than she had ever been before. Yes, it was hers. There was her ivory work-box with her initials in silver and turquoise on it, and her small gold thimble had rolled into a corner of the drawer. John put back the little remnant of a love that had never reached him, into the drawer with a clumsy gentleness, and locked it up. "'I'll show it to die some day,' he said. The other drawers bore record. There were small relics of girlhood, ball-cards, cotillon ribbons, a mug with Marion Fane inscribed in gold on it, a slim book on confirmation. One of Darling Spot's curls was wrapped in tissue paper. John did not even know who Spot was, except that from the appearance of the lock he had probably been a black retriever. Her childish little possessions touched John's heart. He looked at each one and put it tenderly back. Some of the drawers were empty, in some were smart note-paper with faded networks of silver and blue initials on them. In another was an ornamental purse with money in it and a few unpaid bills. John wondered what his mother would have been like now if she had lived. Her sister, Miss Fane, had a weakness for gorgeous note-paper and smart work-baskets, which he had often regarded with astonishment. It had never struck him that his mother might have had the same tastes. He opened another drawer. More fancy work, a ball of silk half-wound on a card, a roll of vari-coloured embroidery, and, thrust in among them, a half-opened packet of letters. The torn cover which still surrounded them was addressed to Mrs. Tempest, Overley Castle, Yorkshire. Inside the cover was a loose sheet which fell apart from the package, tied up separately. On it was written, in a large cramped hand that John knew well, I dare say you are wise in your generation to prefer to break with me. Toute lasse, and then naturally, on se range. I return your letters as you wish it, and as you have been kind enough to burn mine already, I will ask you to commit this last effusion to the flames. The paper was without date or signature. John opened the packet which contained many letters, all in one handwriting, which he recognised as his mother's. He read them one by one and as he read, the pity in his face gave place to a white indignation. Poor, foolish, foolish letters, to be read after a lapse of eight-and-twenty years. John realised how very silly his poor mother had been, how worldly wise and selfish someone else had been. "'We ought to be married, darling,' said one of the later letters, dated from Overley, evidently after her marriage with Mr. Tempest. "'I see now we ought.' You said you were too poor, and you would not bear to see me poor, but I would not have minded that one bit. Did I not tell you so a hundred times? I would have learnt to cook and mend clothes and everything, if only I might have been with you. It is much worse now, feeling my heart is breaking, and yours too, and fate keeping us apart. And you must not write to me any more now I am married, or me to you. It is not right. Mother would be vexed if she knew. I am quite sure she would. 
So this is the very last to my dearest darling Freddy, from poor Marion. Alas! There were many, many more from poor Marion after the very last. Little, vacillating, feeble, gilt-edged notes, with every other word underdashed. Some short and hurried, some long and reproachful. Sad landmarks of each step of a blindfold wandering on the brink of the abyss, clinging to the hand that was pushing her over. The last letter was a very long one. "'You have no heart,' wrote the pointed, slanted handwriting. "'You do not care what I suffer. I do not believe now you ever cared. You say it would be an act of folly to tell my husband, but you know I was always silly. But it is not necessary. I am sure he knows. I feel it. He says nothing, but I know he knows. Oh, if I were only dead and in my grave, and if only the baby might die too, as I hope it will, as I pray to God it will. If I die and it lives, I don't know what will happen to it. Remember, if he casts it off, it is your child. Oh, Freddy, surely it can't be all quite a mistake. You were fond of me once before you made me wicked, and when I am dead you won't feel so angry and impatient with me as you do now. And if the child lives and has no friend, you will remember it is yours, won't you? I am so miserable that I think God will surely let me die. And the child may come any day now. Last night I felt so ill that I dared not put off any longer, and this morning I burned all your letters to me, every one, even the first about the white violets. Do you remember that letter? It is so long ago now. No, you've forgotten. It is only I who remember, because it was only I who cared. And I burned the locket you gave me with your hair in it. It felt like dying to burn it. Everything is all quite gone. But I can't rest until you've sent me back my letters. I can't trust you to burn them. I know what trusting to you means. Send them all back to me, and I will burn them myself. And be quick, be quick, there is so little time. If they come when I am ill, someone else may read them. I hope if I live I shall never see your face again. And if I die, I hope God will keep you away from me. Oh, I don't mean it, Freddy, I don't mean it. Only I am so miserable that I don't know what I write. God forgive you. I would too if I thought you cared whether I did or not. God forgive us both. M. John looked back at the cover of the packet. The overly postmark was blurred but legible. June the 8th and the year... It was his birthday. Her lover had sent back her letters then, with those few harsh lines telling her she was wise in her generation. Even the last he had returned and they had reached her on the morning of the day her child was born. Had it been a sunny day, with no fire on the hearth before which Linda and Fritz now lay stretched, into which she could have dropped that packet? Had she not had time even to burn them? She had glanced at them, evidently. Had she been interrupted, and had she thrust them for the moment with her work into the drawer? Futile inquiry. He would never know. And she had had her wish— she had been allowed to die, to hide herself away in the grave. John's heart swelled with sorrowing pity, as at the sight of a child suffering. She had been very little more. She should have her other wish, too. He gathered up the letters, and, stepping over the dogs, dropped them into the heart of the fire. They were in the safe-keeping of the flames at last. They reached their destination at last, but a little late twenty-eight years too late. And suddenly, as he watched them burn, like a thunderbolt falling and tearing up the ground on which he stood, came the thought, Then I am illegitimate. 
The minute hand of the clock on the mantelpiece had made a complete circuit since John had dropped the letters into the fire. Yet he had not stirred from the armchair into which he had staggered the moment afterwards. His fixed eyes looked straight in front of him. His lips moved at intervals. "'I am illegitimate,' he said to himself, over and over again. No, it was a nightmare, an hallucination of illness. How many delusions he had had during the last few weeks! He should wake up presently and find he had been torturing himself for nothing. If only Mitty would come back. He should laugh at himself presently. In the meanwhile, and as it were in spite of himself, certain facts were taking a new significance, were arranging themselves into an unexpected, horrible sequence. Link joined itself to Link and lengthened to a chain. He remembered his father's evident dislike of him. He remembered how Colonel Tempest had contested the succession when he died. As he had lost the case, John had supposed, when he came to an age to suppose anything, that the slander was without foundation, especially as Mr. Tempest had recognised him as his son. He would known of his existence, of course, but like the rest of the world had half forgotten it. That Lord Frederick Fane, evidently the Freddy of the letters, was even his supposed father, had never crossed his mind. If he was like the Fanes, why should he not be so? He might as naturally resemble his mother's as his father's family. He recalled Colonel Tempest's inveterate dislike of him, Archie's thankless reception of anything and everything he did for him. "'I believe,' said John, in astonished recollection of divers passages between himself and them, "'I believe they think I know all the time, and deliberately keeping them out.' That, then, was the reason why Mr. Tempest had not discarded him. To recognise him as his son was his surest means of striking at the hated brother who came next in the entail. "'I was made use of,' said John, grinding his teeth. There was no use fighting against it. This hideous, profane incredibility was the truth. Even without the letters to read over again, he knew it was true. "'Remember, if he casts it out, it is your child.' The long dead lips still spoke. His mother had pronounced his doom herself. I am illegitimate, said John to himself, and he remembered to die and hid his face in his hands while his mother simpered at him from the wall. The solid earth had failed beneath his feet. Let us beware how we sin inasmuch as by God's decree we do not pay. We could almost conceive a right to do as we will, if we could keep the penalty to ourselves and pay to the uttermost farthing. But not from us is the inevitable payment required. The young, the innocent, the unborn, smart for us, are made bankrupt for us. From them is exacted the deficit which we have left behind. The sins of the father are visited on the children heavily. Heavily. End of Volume 3, Chapter 5